The Argentinian international football manager, Cesar Luis Menotti, once said of his World Cup winning team, Our football belongs to the working class and has the size, nobility and generosity to allow everyone to enjoy it as a spectacle. I feel the same way about Sabutio, a game I first encountered back in the early 1970s. That decade is now often derided as the brown decade, given people's predilection at the time for that particular colour scheme, but to me it was a wonderful time to grow up. It was a time when I first became interested in real music and football consumed my time, both playing and watching the game. Growing up in a council estate in Aberdeen, surrounded by others who played Sabutio, has shaped my attitude to the game to this day. In this episode of the podcast, you'll hear from others for whom the experience was quite often rooted in what can only be described as a working class experience. Was Sabutio, like its big brother football, a working class game? And did the 1980s and Thatcherism change it forever into a game to be played high on tabletops rather than down on threadbare carpets? All that and more coming up in this episode of Finger Flicking Good. Keep listening. Billy Main introduced me to Sabutio. He was a couple of years older than me and lived directly downstairs from me in my council block on Aberdeen's Garthie estate. Within a few weeks of playing the game for the first time, I was obsessed with it, and furiously saving up my meagre pocket money, I began to buy the equipment needed to play the game myself. Not having much money, it took some time. The first thing I bought was a pitch, followed by a set of goals and finally a team. I can remember the team well. I still have it. A ref 68 Chile. By the time I bought it, I'd seen Chile play in the 1974 World Cup and was surprised when I opened the box to find that all the players were painted black. Chile, as I recalled, had not had one single player of colour at that World Cup. It was the first time that Sabutio surprised me in my life, but it would not be the last. Back then, my friends and I only played the game on the floor. I was lucky. Our carpets were pretty threadbare and had seen so much footfall over the years that they had been worn flat, so flat that the green base sat perfectly smooth on top of it. Indeed, I lived in dread of the day that my mum would say it was time for a new carpet. As far as the board was concerned, we never knew anyone who had one, or who played in a table. In fact, it wasn't until I saw a picture in a catalogue some years later that I realised people did actually play it on a table. To me... They must have been posh kids. We were the poor kids, scrabbling down on the floor, kneeling on our players and breaking them off at the ankles, while they looked down on us from the heights of their dining room tables. It was almost a metaphor for life. Us at the bottom on our knees, them above us, lording it over us from their boarded pitches on the tabletop, throwing us scraps when it pleased them. When you think about it, very little has changed. But I wasn't the only one who learned the game the hard way, on the floor. Here's Jason Christopher, who we last heard from in our episode in Series 2 on stadium building. Uh, I started off on the floor. <laughs> I started off on a, on, a, on a dodgy old carpet. Um, first, ever, first ever game of my own game was, um, was on my living room floor, which then um, soon got in everybody's way, so it then transferred to, to my bedroom floor, um, which was even more restrictive because only half half the floor was carpeted. The rest was bare floorboards. Unlike me, his first experience of Sabutio 
was seeing it from the heights of a tabletop. Here he is describing how he first encountered the game whilst on a visit to his cousin's house. Uh, well, the, the first time I ever saw it played and fell in love with the game was when I was I was taken up to my cousin's in Liverpool by my by Gran, who took me on the train up there, and I'd never even heard of it or seen it or anything like that. And I walked into, I remember thinking, uh, going into their house, uh, my cousins Graham and Paul were living there, um, and I was <laughs> just taken aback by the size of the house because it was a, you know, one of these sort of four bedroom detached kind of places uh, in Greasby. And um, I walked in, and as I turned the corner, I mean, they had a dining room, which was, like, unbelievable, the fact they had a dining room. I walked into the dining room, and on this huge table that had sort of, you know, extended ends, they had this um, uh, Sabutio pitch. It wasn't on a board as such. It was on – it was the old Bayes pitch, and it was it was, um, it was was on a – like a blanket underneath it on the table, which was stuck down with double-sided tape to the table and then the pitch was on top of that and then they had the fence around um you know the traditional fence around going around the side of the side of that so there was, en- there was enough room on the table to put i seem to recall it it was held down with blue tack but that was that was the first time i ever saw the game and fell in love with it so i knew from the start you could play it on the table but having a table that size in in the house that i lived in and even my grandparents house was, was out of the question to be honest Martin Og Bradley, co-host of the Sabutio Fantasy League show, didn't even start playing the game on a Sabutio pitch. His introduction to it was a particularly novel one. Well, well I never seen a Sabutio pitch on a table until, well, I don't know, well, I say well on. I was maybe, when was 1988? 89? What is it? I well, maybe it must have been earlier than that. Maybe it was whenever Italia 90, the, the Italia 90 World Cup set came out, it was the first time I ever had a pitch on the table. We have a, well, I didn't know this for years. I didn't actually even realise this until I looked back on photographs. We used to play, we thought it was quite fancy, we thought it was great. You know, we thought it was the perfect Sabudu table, but what it actually was was an old, you know, those small snooker tables. Like a wee toy snooker table, and my father had drawn a Sabudio pitch on it, drawn the lines on it. And the thing was in a great condition. I don't know where it came from. There's wee videos, and you can see the ball rolling, you know, rolling in a like semicircle around the pitch when you were playing on it. But we thought that was great. And the ball used to go down the corner pockets and in the side pocket. Martin Nogg's on screen co host, Lawrence Watson, was another who played the game on the ground. He found that when he and his friends moved to playing it on a board, the allure of the game was somehow lost. Uh, I, I definitely agree with you about being uh, upper class that played it on a table. Um, we were definitely on the floor most most of our days. Um, and definitely, uh, well, uh, like you look at the prices of the stuff when you were a kid and it was like one ninety nine or 2 a team. Um, so it was even then that was expensive. Um but definitely, through time, you become you become better at it. You're playing on the floor, and you're you you nag, if you nag enough, you maybe get something. So, I think we nagged enough. We got a table, or we got a board, and we were able to put it on. And I think it lasted about two weeks before it was uh, just put out to the garage, and nobody wanted to play it. And I think 
I think you enjoy it more when it means something when you're on the floor and it means something to you, you know, and then when you when you get up the, the level where everybody, you know, wants to be, or the, the rich kids, as you would say, at a table, um, and you get up that level and you go, oh, this isn't that great, is it? <laughs> you know, um, I think that playing on the floor definitely makes you more thankful for the game, more respectful for the game, and, and definitely makes you a better player because you're you're learning how to play across them bubbles and onto the carpet there. And then there's it wouldn't have been there's no shag pails or anything. It was all flat rugs or flat flat carpet. Um, but no, I definitely think it makes you appreciate the game more now. And then when you see people now that are built in massive stadiums, and they're saying like, "Oh, I've always wanted to recreate something that I had when I was a kid," and then you're going, "And we didn't even have that as a kid." I mean, I never seen a a grandstand in real life until I was maybe 30 years of age before seeing a real life grandstand and actually owned one. Um, so I think then you appreciate it. I appreciate Subutio more now for what it was then, you know, that way. Stephen Huddle, who publishes a magazine dedicated to Subutio called simply The Hobby, was another who learned to play the game on the floor. And like me, he was someone for whom the table soccer name never really registered in his consciousness. I ever remember playing it on the floor. Um, it could have been that our table, dining table, wasn't big enough or wasn't allowed. I can't really remember. But I did only ever play it on the floor. And, and, and I know what you mean, that the table football never really, wasn't really in my consciousness that that was a you know table related to playing on a table. I just, it was Sabutio when you played it on the floor. Um, and yeah, and it was always with the sort of minimum of setup with the, you know, maybe a couple of dugouts or a scoreboard. And that was it, you know, never had the stadiums or the floodlights and I wonder if that's you know I'm very much into the stadium building community and I'm very much into building my own stadium and I wonder if a lot of people who come back to Sabutio after playing it in childhood tend to do it and try and get the things that they didn't have when they originally played the game. Paul Pearson who paints teams and is active on Twitter as Kits for Flicks was another who grew up playing the game on the floor however there were occasional opportunities to play above ground and when they arose he grabbed them with both hands. So I was uh, one of those that grew up playing on the floor. Um, and we used to sort of like go around my mate's house and have tournaments and things like that. And we always just laid the pitch out on the floor, whether it be on a bit of lino so it was nice and flat, or it might even be on somebody's shag pile carpet. So it was <laughs> like playing in, you know, divots and like playing on dunes, I suppose. Um, but yeah, and it was only kind of, we only ever got to use the table when my parents were out and my parents always used to go and see their friends on a Wednesday night. So that was when me and my brother would just clear the, clear the dining table and then just put the, the pitch up on there and play on that. Stuart Grant, AKA the Subutio collector, grew up playing the game on the floor like everyone else so far. He did, however, know people who had a board, and to his young eyes, this was just simply amazing. Yeah, definitely. I've got a photo of me under the Christmas tree, 1990, with one grandstand and one terrace and the pitch on the floor. I didn't play on a table or even have a table for it until I was 35. So, yeah, should be, it should be played on the carpet. That's the way it should be played. Rough knees, knees breaking players, 
corner flags breaking, gluing it back together. It's the way it should be played on the carpet. It's what it was designed to be. So I didn't know anyone with a table, but I do remember once I made a friend at primary school whose name is, I'll be honest, really bad. His name escapes me now. But I remember going around his house at the age of about 10 and going in his bedroom and he had, it wasn't a table, but he had a big board. It wasn't a nice board. It was like a, an M, not an MDF, like a chip board. But he had a Sabutio pitch pinned on that. <laughs> I didn't really remember being awestruck by it and being like, oh my God, he's got a pitch on a board. But then when it comes to playing it, the ball just went on the carpet anyway. So you were still on your knees, still on the floor. You just had a better surface underneath it. But I was awestruck by the fact that he had this pitch on a chip board. It was amazing. <laughs> Paul Darks, another avid collector who's on Twitter as Sabutio Pad, was another who always played on the floor. And although the pitch had a slope, there were other factors that made his place unattractive venues for his friends to come and play the game. Here he is describing his childhood playing Sabutio. It was uh, on the floor proper, all, uh, 70s, late 70s. Uh, my mum and dad, uh, they had a garage, but it was on a little bit of a slope. And yeah, we just used to light on a bit of old carpet on the floor and then I'd get the neighbours round. That's how we more or less started the league. But I was the one with all the stuff. Um, so all that, they just used to my house and, and as it worked for um he worked for an ICI put in the fizzing pop so he got free basically it was like a little youth club garage if you know what I mean with Sabutio yeah, but it was definitely definitely on the floor. Um the tape I did the chipboard later for that but that was later. But you know it, it was just played on the floor. That that's what he did. Simon Stewart who's on Twitter as at Sabutio Podjov and who we last heard from in Series 2 about playing the game in Germany, was another who started playing on the floor of friends' houses. And this could often lead to problems. Fortunately for him, a chance encounter with a small ad was going to propel him up the Sabutio class structure. started on the floor. Uh, going back to the, the roots of my Sabutio days, I mean, we, we were lucky. We had, it, we had in our street in South Belfast, and we must have had about eight or nine kids that were playing uh, and a few more sort of outside of our street. And we all started playing on the floor. And I think around 1986, we tried to do a start a league where we would all play home and away. And most of those games were on the floor. So there was always the tricky away tie at, for example, Barry's house. Barry still plays and he lived in the same street as me, one of my oldest friends. So there was always the tricky away tie at Barry's house where his, his, his mum's dog might run in and run across the pitch at any minute. Uh, so we always played on the floor. Uh, but I got lucky, I think around 1987 or so. I, I, I'm not sure of the years. But in the newspapers then uh, and in the Belfast Telegraph, people used to sell things to buy and sell ads. And I used to sit and go through them looking for Sabudio stuff. And I seen... Uh, uh, a pitch on a board uh, and about I think there was some stadium bits and probably about 10 heavyweight teams and zombie teams and other little bits and bobs accessories and it was all in the newspaper for £20 so I seen this and I asked my mum you know oh I'd love love that and whatever happened uh, my mum and my dad and we ended up driving up to, to Newton Abbey uh, the Monkstown uh, and we bought this pitch 
and all the accessories for must have been 20 25 pound uh, and brought it back and from that point on I always had a, a pitch on a board then that they could put up on the dining room table uh, and I think I might have been the first of our of all the kids that we were playing with at that time to have a to have a pitch on a board and then a few of the others did after that uh, but it certainly started all on the floor uh, kneeling on players and all that there but eventually I think the board was the way to go and it could be stored in the garage and brought in when you needed it uh, but I, I guess I was lucky that we had space in the garage uh, I can think of other kids that played in our league one of them didn't sort of have that space and he would just get his he had an Astro pitch mine, but he used to roll it out on the dining room table. Unfortunately, the the width of the dining room table was exactly the width of the lines on the pitch. So the, the throw-in lines ran just at the edge and then it would fall away at either side. So that was always a tricky away tie as well. If you tried to play a ball up the line, there's always a chance it would just roll off and, and go on the floor. So I was lucky to I was lucky to A, they've seen that, B, they have parents that were quite happy to fork out 20 quid and drive drive me to North Belfast to get it. Uh, and then lucky enough to have the space. So, uh, yeah, that, that was, that's kind of the genesis of, of, of that. Callum Westwood of Westwood Table Soccer, who described his upbringing as lower middle class, knew how fortunate he was having a father who was into the game. This led him to being in a rather fortunate position, as you'll hear. Oh, how does go my upbringing? Well, I would say I'm like lower middle. I, I, I don't know. Am I working class? I don't know actually how to describe my upbringing in terms of my sort of class systems. Um, my dad was a farmer. My mum worked in an office. Um, I don't know what that means for my upbringing. Um, in terms of beauty, I've been quite lucky that my dad's always had it. So I never had to start with the basic sort of off the shelf set as it were um like my first set that I ever got actually my dad had painted the teams into Southampton and Leicester so I never had the standard reds and blues set um so I guess in a way my upbringing with Sabuto has probably been pretty good um because my dad always had a load of heavyweight stuff so I've always had it around so I guess in my Sabuto upbringing I'm probably middle class <laughs> I don't know in fact Callum was fortunate in more ways than one. Unlike most of our other contributors, he's never had to play the game on his knees. Ah, oh, see, I would have been classed as posh then because I always had it on the table. <laughs> um, but again, I think that a lot of that's down to my dad because my dad, when he was playing, he used to play on a pink blanket that he had drawn on Biro when he was a kid. Um, so, yeah, when I was... Because my mum and dad weren't together when I was growing up either, so I had a separate house. I had my own bedroom at my dad's house and that had a table in it. And my brother's bedroom had a table in it. So we actually had two pictures available as well. So in, in <laughs> into you lot, we probably would have seen being like real the upper class posh kids, but I don't, I don't really think we yeah. were. But yeah, when, when you put it like that, yeah, we in Sabutio terms, we did have a set up, not stadiums or anything like that, but had a pitch, fence around, all that sort of stuff going on around it. In 1974, the year I first began playing Sabutio, the average UK weekly wage was a princely sum of £38.10. At that time, a Sabutio team cost around 60 pence, which would have been way above even my weekly pocket money at the time, so I may have had to save up for a couple of weeks to be able to buy one. 
Christmas and birthdays, by default, became the best opportunity to increase your collection of teams and accessories. I asked each of our contributors to try and recall whether or not they had much money to spend on Subutio. First up, Martin or Bradley. You know, I had no money to buy Subutio. I never had money to buy Subutio. I never had any money, ever. I don't know where... We used to look at those catalogues where grandstands and things and think god wouldn't that be brilliant look at that we used to look at these wins in the pictures i think nothing i never had a new team until i was playing Sabudio from about was about six or seven and i never had my own team i think until i was 11 or 12. we had me for all our stuff was my dad's and i think my father had bought it for his brother my uncle michael and those are the teams that we had. I think we only had three teams. And by the time, I mean, they were, you know, most of the men looked like Daleks with the glue. They were that broken, you know, the glued under the bases. And I remember begging my daddy for a new team. And he said, there's nothing wrong with that team. You just have to polish them, just polish the bases. So we get the plage and polish the bases and that. He was right. I thought, Jesus, this is great. It's like a brand new, it's like a brand new team. So we all started polishing our bases then. And some boys only had one team. Like, we were nearly wealthy because we had, like, three teams. But they were heavyweight teams. And then when the newer lightweight teams came out, no, I only ever had about. To be fair, I was playing Sabudio for, I mean, all about Sabudio for years. Maybe six, seven years when I was wee. And I've only ever amassed five teams. Still have them. They're not great. They're, they're, they're terrible condition. The two old teams that I used for playing a what's a Brazil? It's an old Brazil team, which was my dad's. And then it's a. It's the, it was the only ever time that Derry City was made as a Subidio team, but it was like three teams or something. It was Derry Southampton or something like that, you know. But it was a big deal. Big deal getting that team, getting any team. Jason Christopher was another who didn't have any money to spend but luckily for him he had a member of his family who was willing to get him things yeah i mean i, I had no money at all um i mean i was i was a young kid i didn't have any pocket money my mum was single parent on benefit um my granddad was the the main guy who would um you know, anything i wanted um if i if he could get it for me he would um but because he was on a fairly low wage himself working for the council as a caretaker um if i asked for example if i asked for a chopper for, for christmas or my birthday i would get a tomahawk <laughs> um, um so that i think the very the first the first set i asked for was um like every kid i suppose wanted was the sabutio world cup edition and i ended up with the sabutio club edition not that i was ungrateful because it was just fantastic to get it in the first place but uh, you know, my granddad would do everything he possibly could to, to get what I wanted. But, um, yeah, and then when we used to go into town or whatever, uh, we couldn't go past what was um, Terry Warner's sports shop because that was one of two places in, in Cheltenham that sold Sabutio stuff. Uh, we couldn't go past there without him saying, oh, come on, I'll buy you a team. So we used to, I used to get a team pretty much every time we went into town, which was quite nice. Like I've already said, for most of us, Birthdays and Christmas would be the main way of adding to our collections, and this was certainly the case for Paul Pearson. Yeah, it was. It was very little. It was um, 
mainly sort of birthday presents and and things like that. So I would I, my first set was a Christmas present um, off my mum and dad, um, and then I'd I'd be sort of buying teams maybe with a bit of pocket money every now and then, or if I got some money sent from like a grandparent or an auntie or an uncle, something like that. And you know I, I'd I'd nip down the local toy shop and and be able to buy a team, but yeah. Other than that, it it wasn't something that was sort of lavished on me as a as a child. Stephen Hurrell was another of our contributors who couldn't remember having much money to spend on teams or indeed accessories. I mean, not a lot is the answer. Um, we go occasionally to a shop in Liverpool um, and I buy a team essentially. And I think after I got the original box set, the only superhero I ever bought were, were, was the odd team. Um, so that I could sort of expand my tournaments. Um, I don't ever remember being particularly desperate for all of the accessories. I think they would have been nice, but I think maybe I knew that it, you know that wasn't going to happen. I know I had a friend who had a couple of the, the grandstands, um, and you know they looked great. But I, I was definitely more interested in expanding the collection of teams. And you know at the time they were fairly affordable, so it was never really an issue. Um, but again, as a kid, I wasn't really into. It wasn't really about collecting Sabutio. It was, it was buying the teams so that I could have better tournaments and play. Whereas now, it's all about, um, you know, expanding that collection and you know, buying rare teams or interesting teams and accessories and trophies and all, all those other bits. Ah, the trip into town to buy Sabutio. Those magical trips played a big part in my childhood as it did, I think, in most of our contributors. Here's Lawrence Watson describing a particularly memorable shopping trip with his older brother. No, I had a, a brother who was about six years older than me. Um, I wouldn't say we, were, we, weren't, we weren't spoiled. We got, we got a lot of stuff. Um, I had a father who went to Algeria when, we, when I was 10 to work. As a plumber, so there was no work in Belfast, um, especially for plumbers. It was it was hard. They were always getting paid off. So to go uh, go in and ask your mum for a fiver, I think it would have been to even go down and get a team or something was a lot of money. But I had a brother who was six years older than me, and he was doing one of those YTP schemes that he'd left school and he had a bit of money about him. So he used to take me into town. Um, if I had a fiver myself off my mum. So I always remember coming home with a, two teams, a set of tangos, a subs bench, and coming home in the bus and trying to work out how I got it. And he was just saying to me, don't worry about it. You know, it's okay. And I'm going, no, it's definitely much more than what I should have had. And he, I don't know if he paid for it or stole it, but <laughs> but it was it was like one of the best days ever. I remember coming home in that bus journey. Simon Stewart is another who remembers the trips into town in the 1980s to buy teams. Like Lawrence Watson, he also grew up in Belfast, where shopping trips into the city centre were not always the best idea. I think I got some accessories with that with that set, or with that 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 board and that out of the out of the newspaper, uh, but mm, we would go or my. Uh, my family, my mum would take me and my brother into Belfast, maybe not every Saturday, but every other Saturday. Uh, and we were always allowed to get one thing while we were in town, as long as it wasn't over. I can't remember what the what the price was. 
it must have been three pound or something because pe- teams then were about two pound, two pound fifty. So I would go into Belfast, and my mum would drop me off in Leisure World, which is an iconic toy shop in, in Queen Street in Belfast. And she would drop me off there and go off shopping and just leave me in Leisure World, going through the teams uh, with my three pounds or whatever it was I had. And I was always more interested in the teams. And if there wasn't teams, I may I may have bought a set of balls or, but I wasn't hugely into the accessories. I like. I loved going through the teams uh, and looking for ones that, I guess, Italian teams firstly, Scottish teams, and also just just odd ones that you didn't see very much. So when I think back, I got some I got some decent teams there. I got Boca Juniors, Flamenco, Fluminense. I got uh, Chicago Sting. Uh, I still have all these. I've got. Cause I always I was always drawn to the ones that were a bit rare, the teams that were sort of a bit a bit odd. Uh, not so much towards the popular English teams, though I did have Liverpool and I did have United and I had Everton and Villa and that. But I was always drawn towards the, the, the sort of rarer or more exotic teams, I guess is the better way to put it. Uh, so I was always allowed one team when I went. And sometimes if I seen two that were really, I really wanted... Uh, I remember I seen Santos, and I can't remember the other team I seen. It might have been, it might have actually been Aston Villa, but in that sort of Hummel uh, half and half stripe, like the the old Danish one. Uh, and I wanted the two, and I remember begging my mum, you know, all these. I really, and she allowed me to get the two of them, and told me I couldn't get one next week or whatever. Uh, so yeah, I was lucky to be able to have that. Was my pocket money as well. Uh, so I was lucky to be brought into Belfast and dumped in Leisure World. While I'm thinking about it, you know, at that time in Belfast, it probably wasn't a good idea to be dropping your kid off alone uh, in case something happened. But I, but again, thinking about that as well, I do remember my mum saying, you know, if there was ever a bomb or something, you know, to just go with the, the, the police or security and, you know, stand behind the line or go back to the car or something like that. But... Yeah, I was I was lucky to have parents that could could afford to indulge my hobby, I guess. And I still have most of those teams, you know, in Ireland in a box at home. There must be about I don't know sixty or seventy teams uh, that are all all sitting there, ready to be. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. They're too they're too precious to sell. But by the same token, you know, what am I going to do with them? So I need to. I think I need to get the grips with what I'm going to do with my collection, whether I should sell it or not. But yeah. Stuart Grant, despite being the uber collector that he is, can't remember ever spending money on your teams. I'll be honest, I can't remember. I don't actually remember buying any other Subutio. So I was, what, seven or eight, seven when I got it. I probably had it until the age of about 10. I don't remember buying any additional stuff for my initial set and the grandstands and the teams that I had. But I do remember going into Toys R Us, and I did this even after I got rid of my Subutio, going into Toys R Us and looking at the team stack on the wall and looking at the teams on the shelves. I always remember doing that, but I do not ever remember going to buy Subutio at all, apart from the set I had. And that could very much well be down to that I wasn't given enough pocket money to do it, because I don't see why I wouldn't have done it, because I was into football, I liked the teams. But I never, I never went out and bought teams. I just had the original teams that I had and, and the grandstand box set, what I got for Christmas. Callum Westwood is another who didn't buy Subutio and instead relied on Christmas and birthdays. However, B 
Being a Sabutio brat, brought up in the early days of the online Sabutio community, he always had other options. As a child, I mean, as a as a preteen, none. I don't actually think I bought any Sabutio preteen. Um, I used to get it for like usually birthday and Christmas from my dad. Um, like I say, when we got into when sort of the internet sort of started, when the old modem started kicking in, um, and there was a Sabutio club and the Sabutio fairs, I used to have a bit more together there to save sort of money as and when I could, and I take fifty, sixty quid to a fair. Um, and like I say, I was quite a cheeky, quite a cheeky geezer. I was probably one of the youngest ones there, to be fair. This tends to be quite a, a hobby dominated by the older generations, I would say. Um, so, yeah, I was always one of the youngest ones there. So I was able to get, you know, some some pretty good deals. Um, I mean, 60 quid would probably, depending on what teams it was, would probably get you like four, maybe five heavyweight teams back then, depending on what it was. Obviously, there's certain teams even back then that were still worth a uh, worth a pretty penny um but my most expensive one is I think it was 30 quid I think that's 30 pounds I think I bought a ref 36 which I almost walked away from because I thought it was too expensive but I'm glad I have it now for sure growing up in a council estate in the 1970s we were much freer to explore our surroundings this would usually mean hours spent out of the house, usually playing football or cycling on our bikes. Bad weather, however, would always force us indoors, and that's when the Sabutia would come out. And before you knew it, leagues and cups were being organised. I wondered if, like me, our contributors had also had a vibrant Sabutia playing community where they grew up. Instead of finding a class divide over these questions, what appeared to separate them was age. First up, Representing the more mature contributor is Paul Darks, although his memory is not what it used to be. To be honest, Derek, 40, 40 odd years now, about 78, 79, 80, something like that. I, I just think we had, we did. I remember keeping the scores in a book and, and uh, but I cup and we'd play each other. And it, I, to be honest, Derek, I can't remember exactly what did it for a long time, but. Whether it was, a, I think we just play and, but I definitely used to keep scores because and and like the scorers. But to, to, did I? Did we do a league? I can't remember. We probably did, but I cannot remember. It's been so long ago. On the other hand, Martin Og Bradley has a much better memory of playing Sabutio with his friends when he was young. Ah, that was good. We had a garage. What was that? It was a row of garages, you know, not connected. Our houses would have been like a row of houses above the garages. So we played, we had a get up, we had a great setup, to be fair for them days. Yeah, and you would have had half a street in the garage crammed under it and standing outside the garage all wins. Jason Christopher also has clear memories of playing Subutio with his friends. Uh, well, yeah, there was, funnily enough. Um, although my mum was a bit funny about me having sort of friends around to, to play. So most of the time I played on my own. And it was only this sort of one one or two occasions I was ever allowed anybody around to, to play in my house. Um, there was a lad that lived opposite me called Mark Davis. who was He was a really good player. And I used to go over his and, and play at his for a while. And then he introduced me to uh, John Ursel, who was an exceptional player um who lived about 
three or four streets away. Um, there was another, there was a couple of other kids in our street that used to sort of join in with us occasionally. And then John Ursel decided to form a league. So he formed the, what was called the first Reddings League. Because that was the area of Cheltenham in which, in which we lived. Well, Gloucestershire in which we lived. And, um, yeah, we all played in that. And um, it wasn't it wasn't long before we were end up, we, we were going along to playing, you know, organised Sabutio tournaments up and down the country. And then we, uh, in another part of Gloucestershire, there was another league called Gotherington League, which included the, the famous Matthews brothers, Pete and Dave Matthews. Lawrence Watson and Simon Stewart are fortunate in that they inhabit that twilight zone between the more mature contributor and the younger one. Both have fond memories of playing with their friends. First up is Lawrence, followed by Simon, whose recollections are helped, as you can hear, by having a handy primary source close at hand. We had a, we had a guy up the street from us, um, Tony Duggan, you called him. He was a bit older, he was about the same age as my brother. I think he was about a year year younger than my brother, so he's about five years older than us. So they had um they had a league. They started a league and I think I told you before about the Tudor Crisps, where you got the teams for free for collecting the bags of crisps. So we all had sent away and got ourselves a couple of free teams. Um I always remember somebody having Scotland, that beautiful Scotland kit from nineteen ninety. But it might have been the eighty eight kit, you know, the the trim round the, the navy trim round the white shorts. Um, so we played a World Cup um, in his garage so this guy had a garage and it was all I remember clearly it was an unfinished garage it maybe had a window and a door and a, and a but there was no work done to it there was no lights so you had to open the big garage door at the front for the light to come in so it was the summer the, light, the nights were long you were playing competitions and you were always put out early um, I, I to say there, I knew the rules when I was ten. Probably, I was probably making them up as I went along. But when you went and played with the older boys, they told you the rules, and you were just always put out. There was no, there was no getting past the first round. Um, but I always remember a guy, Sean Og McGuinness, getting disqualified for using his thumb, and nobody knew what he was doing. Um, so they were playing games. I think they might have had two tables. I think they might have had a, a table in the driveway as well outside. And I remember him getting to the quarterfinal or something, this guy, and then I'm getting a whole big argument. And they all caught him. He was using his thumb and his middle finger to flick and shoot. So he was he was rattling goals in from everywhere and everyone was like, hardly a beat him, he's too good. And then one of the older boys seen what he was doing, disqualified him. So that was that was our memory of playing it. And then obviously when the World Cup ended, the Subido got packed away and it was never seen again. Um nobody wanted to play it. The novelty of the World Cup had gone, so I actually met the guy Tony Dugan a couple of, last year at my father's wake. He he come to my father's wake at the house. He lived up the street. So, and we were talking about Sabudio, and I he said to me, "I must go up and check my dad's. I'm almost sure I've still got a whole load of teams in my my father's attic, but he hasn't come back to me. And I, I have a contact for him. I must get in touch with him because if he had a, the stuff that we all had then, it would be." Worth a few quid, definitely. And I guess our first, I mean, I'm going back to when I was 11. And actually still, I have my, I'm, I'm sitting with my book in front of me. I wrote all, I've written all my results in a book since about 1987. So every game I've ever played is written in this book. And I have the league table. I'll actually open the book here. 
I have the, the league table from 1986. Where is it? Uh, but yeah, where is it? There was... Yeah, season 86-87, it says. There was one, two, three... There were six of us, actually. Um, yeah, we only there were six of us, but I think the most number of games played was five. So we had a home and away, and it was over a summer from what I remember. There's Barry uh, as well on the league table. We I only managed to we only we didn't get the league finished. I think you know fights sort of erupted between people and whatever. But it was due to be a round robin home and away tournament. Uh, I played four games, won three, drew one. Barry was the same. So I won it on default on goal difference. So the first league champion. Uh, and then we, yeah, and there was a cup as well. I seen. I don't have the results for the cup, but there is a, a cup final. I lost the cup final to Andy McLean, uh, who wasn't in the league, actually. Uh, so, but that, that was how it started. And I think when that sort of collapsed, then we just, we just sort of played each other. Uh, maybe like mini tournaments. We would sort of maybe do at each other's houses. But it wasn't until... 91 again 16 that we actually held another proper league uh, yeah and we had two divisions top division of four bottom division of three more like a development league I think you would maybe call it the, the second division uh, and we played that over I think there was four four fixtures and then the season after we had a proper league 28 games uh, one two three eight eight players 28 games playing each other four times, and we finished that one. So that was in 91. Uh, and looking at the names, I mean, Barry features through all these, and Barry still plays. Uh, me and Barry were in the Northern Ireland team together. So we've always had a rivalry and a friendship, and it's kind of nice that something like Sabudio that sort of brought us together, uh, still, we still have that link. Uh, but yeah, we played leagues and cups. But whenever the, 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 the league wasn't going, we would just probably play little tournaments. Maybe, you know, I would be Germany and, you know, one of the other boys would be Ireland and well, somebody else would be France and we'd play little tournaments. But As a result of playing tournaments with his friends, Simon soon found himself playing in official tournaments. Here he is telling us about his first step into the big time. But during that time as well, between about 86 and 91, we were all attending, well, not all of us, but a few of us were attending national tournaments. My first national tournament was actually in Leisure World in Belfast in 1986. And that was the thing that got me the bug. Uh, I turned up with another player from my league, Stuart McKinley. And we just happened to be both in Belfast that day. And the national championships were on, which were being organised by the, the Scottish Superdue Association. I don't think there was an organiser in Northern Ireland at that time. And they were, I think three players hadn't bothered to turn up. So they were asking kids who were watching, oh, do you want to come and play? So me and Stuart volunteered and that was my first tournament. And it's still uh, it's still a great memory. Uh, and it's on the, the Northern Ireland Table Football Association website, the NITFA website. They've got results going right back to 1979. And if you click on 1986 in the junior section, there's, that's that's my name appears for the first time, which is kind of nice to see as well. It's evidence that I, I played at that tournament. So it, it, I guess for us, it, we, were, we were just kids. You know, we weren't really linked in with the wider Sabudio world. There was a, a big club in Bangor. They were sort of probably more famous or successful or they had players and they had 
older adult players who were organising them. So they were always the, the kind of darlings of Subudio in Northern Ireland. Uh, and we always felt like we were kind of the underdogs, but that suits me fine. Being an Aberdeen fan and that and I, I like being the the smaller of the of, of the rivals. And then whenever you do eventually beat the big boy, it's you know, you feel like you've given them a right good bloody nose, you know. <laughs> the nineteen nineties came a generation of parents who were much more risk averse. Children became hot housed, spending more and more time indoors. A stranger danger made mums and dads all over the country terrified for their children's safety. As a result, children dropping in at their friends' houses to play became something of a rarity. As you can hear, our younger contributors, it seemed, grew up at a time when local unofficial leagues started to feature less and less, as children moved from playing with little plastic figures and moved to games consoles. The age of FIFA had arrived. Paul Pearson, however, did his best to spread the word in this new age of agnosticism. Uh, No, there wasn't. Actually, um, it was uh, literally just playing against my brother um, and and his mates when they would come round. Or like I say, I'd, I'd set up little tournaments between uh, my friends at school. Um, and, you know, th- th- I don't know if, if it was uh, something that you guys had when, when, when you were younger. Um, but last day of term at school, we used to be able to take games in. So I'd always take my Subutio set in and push a few of the, the tables together and then like set up a tournament there with, with all my classmates. Um, so, yeah, that, that was it. There was n- never anything like uh, like a club or, or anything like that local to me. Stephen Hurrell is another of our younger contributors who had a small group of friends to play matches with. And listening to him, there is a whiff of wistfulness as he thinks about missed opportunities. It probably wasn't as vibrant as a lot of the stories I hear, and I'm sure you've heard from other people as well on, for the podcast. Um, it, it was me and a small group of friends um, who would play games against each other. Um, but again, we either we were lazy or just not very good at it because we never really set up any sort of league structures or anything like that. I did a lot of that myself. Um, we would just play the odd game when we were around, but obviously our childhood was split between things like Spootio and actually going out into the gardens and parks and playing football. So um, it probably wasn't as intense Spootio childhood as a lot of the stories that you get. Um, but I know what you mean about, about Spootio being working class. A lot of the people who I speak to when they talk about the childhoods and the people who've got the real love of Spootio now, um, a lot of that is it seems to be from people with working class backgrounds. I'm not sure if that's a thing. I'm just not speaking to the right people or if it is actually a thing that Spootio is more popular um, you know, in those areas of the country. For Stuart Grant, growing up in Essex at the time of computer games meant there wasn't a vibrant community where he lived. Instead, they spent most of their time outdoors playing actual football. No, see, I don't remember a Subutio community. I mean, all my friends, we, we all got together playing multiple different things. I mean, I'm of that generation where computer games were just coming out. So I had Subutio. I had the friend that I just mentioned that had Subutio. But we didn't, I know there's some great stories of communities that got together and have tournaments, but we didn't really do anything like that. We would go, I'd go around someone's house and he'd have like an, a Spectrum or a Commodore or an Amiga or something like that. And we'd play computer games or I'd then go around someone else's house and we'd play something else. Or they'd come around my house and we'd have a little flick around playing some beauty over. It wasn't something that as a community, we all played together. 
we all went, when we go around someone's house, we all played something different. And that's when we did go around someone else's house. Most time, we just went out over the field. We, had, we was really lucky because we had this field over the back and it was wonky, but you had two trees exactly the length of two football goals. And then up the other end, you had another tree and a lamppost, which although it was a different angle, they was another goal. And we, had, we used to go out and play football all the time over that field. And then when the streetlights come on, we all went home. So if anything, we probably didn't go around each other's houses as much as I've just said. We went out and played football until it got dark and we had to come home. So we probably didn't go around each other's houses enough to actually play Sabutio. It was only then when I got home, I would get it out myself on my own and knock it around myself for a half hour to an hour. Whether or not my hypothesis has been proved or disproved after hearing from our various contributors is a moot point. Sabutio, at least for me, will always be a working class experience, as it will be for many who have played it. Sure, there's always been a middle class element to it with games played on tables rather than the floor, but what is also clear is the aspirational working class side to it, with so many people growing up and building a stadium or investing in top-end modern bases to improve their game. Whatever the sport, whatever the hobby, this will always be the case. I'll leave the last word in this episode to Stephen Hurrell. Given what we've talked about this week, he feels there's an irony in where Sabutio, the game was invented, developed and made. I think it's quite interesting because, you know, Sabutio as a company was, I don't think, ever working class, you know, set up in Tunbridge Wells, Langton Green, very nice part of the country. Um, you know, they weren't short of money, especially once Sabutio took off as well. Um, but it was picked up by, you know, probably a lot of working class boys. And, you know, Sabutio did know that as well because they advertised directly to them through the magazines that people were reading at the time, you know, the Boy Zone and um, Roy the Rovers and things like that. So clever marketing again, I suppose, because there's probably not many businesses that actively target, um, you know, those areas of society. I'll leave it up to you to decide whether or not you agree with my hypothesis that Sabutio was always a more working than middle-class experience for those who played it. There's certainly been lots of input from this week's contributors to suggest that that was the case. Or maybe that just reflects the fact that many within the current Sabutio community come from working-class backgrounds. In the second part of this episode, I'll be asking whether or not Sabutio, like its big brother, Association Football, has been gentrified, and whether or not the modern game is affordable to young players from working-class backgrounds. So if you don't want to miss the show, then subscribe to Finger Flicking Good on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finger Flicking Good is an airtime production. It's written and presented by me, Derek Eyre, with contributions from Martin R. Bradley, Jason Christopher, Paul Barks, Stuart Grant, Stephen Harrell, Paul Pearson, Simon Stewart, Lawrence Watson, and Colin Westwood. The theme music is Drive. It's written and produced specially for the programme by Campbell Eyre of The Creature Appeal. Check them out on Apple Music, Amazon Music, and Spotify.